0: All right. Are you ready for the word this morning? All right. I know you are. You know what? This morning, my my sermon is just a few minutes shorter. It's not real short, but it's a few minutes shorter than it usually is. And uh, I was kind of wondering during the week, well, God, why is this a little shorter than it usually is? I didn't know, and I know now, God had some things he wanted to do in worship. Amen. I hope I was your heart encouraged in worship. The Holy Spirit is doing his work. Yeah. Amen. God is a living God. He's a God that knows where you are and wants to encourage you and lift you up and form you into the image of Jesus and increase your faith. Amen. Well, that's not part of the service. That's, uh, that, that's just extra this morning. Uh, so this morning we're continuing in our series entitled Heroes of the Bible. Heroes of the Bible. You remember that last week we had an introductory message in which we established some important ideas that should inform us every time we look at any hero of the Bible. So if you missed it, I encourage you to go online to our website and get the podcast. However, here are two of the most important ideas that we talked about last week. We want to keep these ideas in mind every time we look at any hero of the bible and the first is this bible heroes are just like us they're not super spiritual super believers who possess super spiritual gifts that aren't available to the rest of us they're people of faith people with the same faith in the living god that we have the people who looked at whatever situation they were in with faith in god so what that tells us is this right Um, we need to increase our faith if we have the same faith that they had then God increase our faith. In every situation of life, every day, day after day, God increase our faith. God increase my faith. I, I hope that's your prayer request this morning. And then the second is this, is that Bible heroes point us to Jesus. They don't possess these supernatural gifts and powers or control them themselves. They point to the one who does, the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. And they're saying he's the one who brought us the victory They stand as witnesses to the faithfulness of jesus and encourage us in our day in our lives to be a hero Of the faith keep your eyes fixed on jesus So those are the two big ideas we want to keep in mind and this week We're going to be looking at our first hero. His name is moses And the title of this is going to be Moses, the Unwilling Hero. Now today we're going to start looking at the story Moses wrote. We're going to look at this in two parts. This week and next week we'll be talking about Moses. Today is the story that Moses wrote. Next week we'll be talking about the story that God wrote. Or if you will, maybe you could say it's Act One of Moses' life, and we'll take an intermission, and then next week we'll have Act Two. You know, or or today is the uh, uh, we'll look at how how. Moses tried to uh, work God's will, and next week we'll look at how God decided to work. Thank you for your spirit. You've moved among us in an awesome way, God. Now we keep our hearts open to your spirit and to your word. Move among us. Encourage us. Lift us up. Strengthen us in the name of Jesus, we pray. Everyone said amen. Amen. Now I want you to think with me for a minute. Who are some of your favorite presidents of the United States? I mean, the most inspiring presidents. If you're like me, probably immediately you started thinking of names like George Washington and uh, Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln, people like that, right? Well, I have one, for me personally, that I add to the list. His name is President James Garfield. Now, some of you are probably wondering, James Garfield? I haven't even heard that name before. Was he even really a president? Or if you have heard it, you may be thinking, well, my goodness, he was only president for six and a half months. You know, what could he have possibly done as president to be that impressive? And and the thing about it, he's not so inspirational for what he did as president as for how he became president. Let's look at it for a minute. Here's why he's so inspirational to me. James Garfield didn't set out to be president, or even a politician for that matter. He was born in a rural town outside of Cleveland, Ohio. He was somewhat of an academic, and he wanted to be a teacher and that's what he became first a teacher and eventually a lawyer as well he was also a professing christian and as such he hated the institution of slavery so when the civil war started he joined the union army and uh, became a colonel he had never been in the army and they made him a colonel how would you like to walk into that <laughs> that level right and uh, but all that meant was he was in charge now of recruiting other people And so he became a colonel, and uh, eventually this led to him. He became a major general as well, and it led to him becoming a United States congressman in 1863, and then a senator in 1880. And he was known as a tireless public servant without much in the way of personal political ambitions. Then, at the Republican National Convention of 1880, before he could even take his seat as a senator, he was still in the House of Representatives. He had been elected to the Senate. Something remarkable took place. Garfield attended the convention and gave an impassioned speech to nominate John Sherman as the Republican nominee for president that year. And. Uh, Uh, John Sherman was the Secretary of the Treasury, and so that was his nominee, and there were about 14 people nominated that year. Only three had a real chance of being elected. One was Ulysses S. Grant. He had already been president for two terms. He had retired and been away for four years, and now he was seeking an unprecedented third term. The other, the second one, was Senator Blaine from Maine, and then there was Garfield's candidate, John Sherman. So on the first ballot, Grant receives. They needed 394 votes to win. Grant received 304. Blaine received 284. And Sherman received 93 votes. Now, normally when that type of thing happens, as ballots keep going, the, the, the people who voted for the one with the lowest votes start to go to other candidates until finally you have a winner. But in this case, in this year, that didn't happen. People got entrenched and almost no one was changing their votes. And this went on and on and on. Over 30 votes... 30 ballots, and they still didn't have an election. Finally, after the 34th ballot, somebody stood up and nominated James Garfield. And Garfield stood up and protested. He stood up for a point of order and and said, no, you can't do that. First off, the balloting is closed. And second off, you can't nominate someone against their will. And I don't have aspirations to be president. But the chairman, who secretly was fond of Garfield, overruled him and let his name stand. It's kind of like when you're not there at the church business meeting and suddenly find out afterwards you've been elected secretary and you have to take all the notes. (laughs) Something like that, right? And so the next vote, 50 people voted for Garfield. And still, we had a deadlock. But the 36th ballot, 399 people voted for Garfield, and he was... Elected to be the nominee of the Republicans for president that year. They shut down the convention They lifted him on their shoulders carried him through the streets of Chicago, Illinois all excited He's up there wondering what in the world just happened. What just happened? And Maybe even more amazing than that is what happened after this you might expect that the candidate for president might get on the train and travel to all sorts of different areas of the country making speeches you know, about how, why you should vote for him. But instead, Garfield went back to his home, outside of Cleveland, and stayed there. He let other people do the candidate for him, and they conducted a very low-key, what they called, um, front porch campaign. Uh, and uh, basically, he received people, reporters and others, who would come to him, looking to talk to him about who he was and about his positions, and he would greet them on his front porch, the front porch campaign. And uh, you can still see it. His house is there. Um, if you're ever in, uh, in outside of Cleveland, um, I'd recommend stopping and, and taking the tour at the national parks of his house. It would be worth the time. And so uh, he had this front porch campaign, and he was elected president of all things. And I think the thing that is so inspiring to me is, I think, as far as I know, he's the only president we, we've ever had that did not want to be president. He didn't aspire to be president, he didn't want power, he didn't seek power, but uh, the country said, you know what, we need you to be president, and he responded. You know, a lot of times, this is a quality that genuine heroes have. They're not seeking to be the hero, they're not seeking the limelight, they're not saying, you know what, hey everybody, I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. You know, if you just... uh, uh, you know, put your faith in me. You know, I'm going to deliver you. You know, most heroes aren't like that. You know, they, they step up and sometimes they're unwilling heroes. Well, Moses, we're going to find out, was an unwilling hero, much like Garfield was. So let's look at it a little bit. When you think of Moses, what do you think of? Many of us think of uh, the heroic bravery of the man who stood unwavering before Pharaoh and said, Let my people go. A lot of us will think of the ten plagues that God brought on Egypt through Moses. Many of us will think of the parting of the Red Sea and images of Moses leading the people on dry ground through the Red Sea, leading them from bondage to freedom. Many of us will think of the guy who received the Ten Commandments directly from the finger of God written in stone. Uh, We'll think of the guy who God used to write five books of the Bible, what we know as the Pentateuch. He was the most influential prophet of the Old Testament. He was so influential that he is considered to be possibly the greatest lawgiver of all time. So much so that if you go to Washington, D.C. and look at the Supreme Court building, you'll see this carving at the top of the Supreme Court building that has many famous lawgivers. And right in the middle is Moses there with the Ten Commandments. He's a giant figure, not only in the Bible, but in the history of humanity. He is a hero of the faith. However, when God called him, he had no aspirations of being the leader of the free Israelites. He had no aspirations of doing any of these things that we mentioned. He didn't want to be a hero. Let's look at it. As I said, we're going to look at two parts. This week is Act 1, the part that Moses wrote. And then next week, um, we'll look at Act 2. This week goes up until about his 80th birthday. And then next week, we'll look at from 80 to 120. How many of you know that God can do some awesome things in the latter part of your life? All right, we'll talk about that next week. I just feel to emphasize that a little bit here. God can do some awesome things in the latter part of your life. God says stay fresh and green right in old age and uh uh, not hey it's time for everybody else to do something now god wants to do awesome things through all of you amen well that's good preaching too that's (laughs) hallelujah all right we're going to begin this morning looking at acts chapter 7 acts chapter 7 and you might think you know that's an odd place to start pastor uh shouldn't we be starting in the old testament uh are we going to look well we'll look at that next week exodus chapters 3 and 4 the part that god wrote but this week in Acts chapter 7, we're going to find some important background material about Moses and the first part of his life, so, and hopefully find something that we can apply to our lives today as well, all right? So we come to Acts chapter 7, and we encounter this guy, Stephen. Stephen is a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's standing before the Sanhedrin at the temple in Jerusalem, and some angry people had accused him of blaspheming against Moses and blaspheming against God, and uh, they had falsely accused him, and, and you know what? So he's standing before the Sanhedrin, and this is not surprising. Jesus had told his disciples that they would be dragged to synagogues and accused and beaten, that they would be hated and martyred for his namesake. So this isn't really that surprising. And so they dragged Stephen before the Sanhedrin with these angry lies and false charges. And in verse 1 it says, the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? You know, and this is really not much different from the time when they dragged Jesus before the Sanhedrin or when they dragged... Paul and, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, John and, and Peter before the Sanhedrin as well. So if you were an average Jewish person, uh, this, these are the people that you wanted to steer clear of. They didn't have much of a sense of humor. They were very serious, and they could make your life miserable if you got on their bad side. You wanted to steer clear of them. And what follows here is Stephen's explanation of his faith and his explanation of the things that he had actually said about Moses and about God. And so he begins by talking about how God called their father, their forefather Abraham, out of a foreign country and had given him this covenant and how uh, God called uh, the other patriarchs as well, Isaac and Jacob, and gave them the same covenant, that they would be God's special people, and, and how Joseph came along, Jacob's son, and God raised him up in Egypt to be the second most powerful ruler in all of Egypt, and Jacob moved his his people, the, the whole family, down to Egypt to be saved from the famine that was happening at that time, and, and how the people of Israel grew and multiplied uh, in Egypt, so much so that the Egyptians became afraid of them and began to mistreat them and put them into servitude. It says it this way in verses 18 and 19. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they could die. Well, that is oppressive. And finally, we get to verse 20, we come to Moses, and remember, our story's not really about Stephen, right? It's about Moses. Stephen is a hero in his own right. We'll maybe get to him another time. But here, we get to Moses, and verse 20 through 22, look, look at it. It says, at that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside... Now you remember the story. He was placed in a uh, basket in the Nile River and and Pharaoh's daughter took him and and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and in action. Now stop there for just a minute. These verses tell us at least three important things about Moses' background. The first is this. He was brought up in royalty. He was raised as a son of of Pharaoh's daughter. He was a prince of Egypt. Brought up in the royal court. He had all of the privileges of royalty. He knew what it was to, to be around important people. He rubbed shoulders with, with powerful people. He grew up around people of, of power and influence and watched his adopted grandfather rule the nations. And then second, it says that he was well educated. The first part of verse 22 says it this way. He was educated in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians. Now, this was considered the premier culture on the face of the earth at the time. More knowledge resided in Egypt than in any other place at that time. And Moses was in the middle of it all. He was exposed to the most brilliant minds of his day. He had a broad exposure to every area of study. Uh, look how it's worded. It doesn't say that. And Moses majored in this or that, or focused on this or focused on that. It says he was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was like a Rhodes Scholar. Or it was like he had a full-ride scholarship to Harvard to major in everything. He was well-educated. And then thirdly, he had a commanding personality. Look at the second part of verse 22. It says it like this. He was powerful in speech and action. He was a leader. When Moses taught, people listened. When Moses took action people followed him. He was powerful in speech and action. He was a strong leader, the type of person who would inspire others to follow him. As an adult, he was likely involved in the government in some way. You know, the Jewish historian Josephus says that Moses at one point was in charge of the army and led uh, the Egyptian army on a campaign against the Ethiopians, and that's where he met his Ethiopian or Cushite wife. Now, We're not sure if that that happened or not. The historian Josephus says it did. But whether it did or not, Moses would have had some important position in the government of Egypt. He was royalty. He was intelligent. He was a strong leader. That's who he was naturally. That's the type of person that he was. Now, let's go on. Look at verses 23 to 25. These verses are going to show us something of how Moses viewed himself and his life's purpose let's read it when Moses was 40 years old he decided to visit his own people the Israelites he saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them but they did not now stop there for a minute I want you to really catch that Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. First, I want you to see this. Moses identified with the people of God. That is remarkable. I don't want you to to rush over that or take that for granted. You know, most scholars think that probably Moses was maybe at the very most, weaned by his mother, says uh, that Jacob had weaned him and nursed him so that maybe three or four years she had influence on him. And that's it. And so for the next, he's 40 here, and so for the next 37 years, Moses is immersed in Egyptian culture. He's been around Egyptian parents and teachers and friends. Every influence in his life for 37 years has been Egyptian. And yet it says he decided to visit his own people. It doesn't say he just decided to visit the Hebrews. He decided to visit his own people. He viewed himself as a Hebrew. Somehow, he maintained an identity as an Israelite. And it shows us something of God's purposes in history. Moses, by the time he was 40, should have had every vestige of his Hebrew identity wiped from him, driven from him. Only God could have maintained in him this Hebrew identity. And this sense of identity that Moses had, it kind of mirrors the sense of identity that the uh, Israeli people, the Hebrew people, keep today, down to our day, for more than 3,000 3, years. By all rights, in the natural, the Hebrew identity as a people group should have long faded into the shadows of history. Like the Philistines, the Philistines, and the Moabites, and the Ammonites, and the, the Edomites, and so many other ites who were conquered so many times and, and absorbed into other people groups and lost their identity. The Hebrew people were, were conquered so many times and deported from their land so many times and, uh, and tried to be annihilated by so many evil people so many times. In the natural, by any rights, they should have long ago lost their identity as a people. Only the hand of God could have continued to have them have their identity as a people. And in a similar way here, with Moses, only God, For 37 years, having been immersed in Egyptian culture, could have had him keep his identity as a Hebrew, as a child of Abraham. And then secondly, I want you to see this. These verses show us that Moses understood something of the calling of God on his life. He understood something of the purposes of God on his life. When he saw the Egyptian mistreating uh, the Hebrew, he killed the Egyptian. Then in verse 25, it says this amazing thing. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them. Catch that. It tells us what Moses was thinking when he killed the Egyptian. He thought that they would realize God was using him to rescue them. And you know what? This idea is not in the book of Exodus. You can't find it there. For some reason, God waited all the way till here in the New Testament through Stephen to reveal this to us. And it's truly amazing. It shows us that at this early date, 40 years before the burning bush, Moses had some idea that God wanted to use him to rescue and deliver the Israelite people. He had some idea of himself as a rescuer and deliverer of God's people. As a matter of fact, the way the Greek is worded here, It's in what we call the imperfect tense, which implies continuing action or continuing thought. And so, in other words, it's kind of like Moses was thinking or that he had been thinking that this is what God wanted to do. It implied that for some time, Moses had been been thinking that God wants to use him to rescue them. And possibly, in his mind, that rescue was starting that day. The Revolution Day is here. The freedom is starting today with him. And it seems like, in Moses' mind, it should have been obvious to everyone. I mean, he's thinking, of course, you know, they've all surely heard of me. They've heard my mother and brother and sister tell the story of how I was saved out of the Nile River and how how Pharaoh's daughter adopted me and, and how I thought I was brought up in Pharaoh's court. And, and surely they've been able to put two and two together and realize, you know, uh, this, this Moses here, um, he, he's going to be a deliverer. Surely been able to, to put that together. And now, here I am. I finally showed up. It's like he showed up with his chest all puffed out like Mighty Mouse, and he's thinking, here I come to save the day. That means that Moses is on the way. If you didn't get that, uh, um, go YouTube Mighty Mouse after service. Surely there'll be cheers all around. They'll realize I'm the hero. Moses supposed that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue him. Now, why do you think Moses would think that? Well, did you know that at this time, some archaeologists, some believe that the Pharaoh of this time did not have a son. And if that's true, then this son of Pharaoh's daughter may have been in line to become the next Pharaoh. Now, whether that's true or not, what we do know is that he was intelligent, he's powerful, he's influential, and he thinks that it should be obvious that God wants to use him to be a hero. What's not obvious to him, and what should be obvious to us as we read this and study this, is that if you are of the opinion that it should be obvious to everyone around you that you are the hero, then you need to watch out, because you're probably on the verge of of a downfall. What does it say in Proverbs? Pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, right? Uh, So let's look at it. Moses' downfall, verses 26 to 29. It says, The next day Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. All right, let's unpack this for a minute. Moses tried to fulfill the plan of God in his own power, in his own wisdom, in his own strength. Moses tried to fulfill the plan of God in the flesh or in the sinful nature. He killed the Egyptian. Now, God never told him to do that the Egyptian. He tried to accomplish God's purpose by using his own ability to fulfill the the will of God in the flesh. He may have thought, hey, you know, I'm royalty. I can take matters into my own hands. You know, I have authority. I can make this happen. I'm a big deal around here. I'm powerful. If I want this guy dead, he's going to be dead. If I want this guy freed, he's going to be freed. I can make it happen. I can free my brothers if I want to. And what he found out is God's plan cannot be accomplished in the flesh in the sinful nature it cannot be accomplished in our own ability and wisdom and insight and power what's the bible say not by human might right not by human wisdom but by my spirit says the lord that's how god's will and god's purposes are accomplished in our lives by his spirit and it's really tempting after receiving a call from God or a vision for God or, or, or some revelation from God about what he wants to do in your life. Something that he wants to do. To say, you know what, okay, that's great, God. I can take it from here. I've got it. I can handle this. I can do this. I, I, I've got it all uh, worked out. And the truth is, no, I don't have it handled. The truth is, no, you don't have it handled. You know, as a pastor, I'm, I'm so keenly aware every single Sunday that God has given me just enough raw ability to have a nice little talk and have nothing matter for eternity. And that's true of every single pastor who's ever uh, preached the word of God. Of ourselves, that's the ability that we have. As worship leaders, we have the ability to have a nice sing-along and have nothing matter for eternity. But when God comes by His Spirit, when God moves by His Spirit, when we lay ourselves down and say, God, we need you. We need you to do the work that we can't do. And this is true of every single Sunday school teacher or children's church worker or girls uh, or boys ministries worker. You have just enough raw ability to go through a curriculum and have nothing matter for eternity. But I believe that the spirit of God wants to work through Sunday school teachers and and, and children's church workers and in boys' workers and girls' workers and people in other ministries in the church, people in outreach ministries, in a powerful way where he may give you wisdom and insight into just the way some uh, uh, student needs to hear something or just the way someone needs to hear something or give you a word of knowledge to say a word of encouragement that by his spirit, God's work is done. God can do it. God can do it through you. I don't have this. You don't have this. We need the Holy Spirit of God. We can't accomplish the purposes of God in the flesh. God's purposes here were indeed to free his people through Moses. But he didn't want Moses to kill the Egyptians to do it. God's purposes for David was that he become king of Israel, but he didn't want him to kill King Saul to do it. You know, God's purposes for you may be that you become the CEO of a large corporation, but I can guarantee you he doesn't want you to kill the careers of everybody in your path to do it. God wants to accomplish his purposes by his spirit and in his way, according to his word. Trying to accomplish the purposes of God in the flesh results in shattered dreams and broken lives. Look at verse 28 and 29. The one in the wrong said to Moses, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? You know what that says to me? Is if Moses had been able to free the people of God this way, they would have looked at him as just another powerful overlord who rules with an iron fist and gets rid of anyone who's in his way. That's who they would have seen him as. And so when Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. Pharaoh was angry with Moses and wanted to kill him. Some think that that the Pharaoh may possibly have already been suspicious of his loyalties as a Hebrew and and his loyalty uh, uh, to the Pharaoh and his background. And, And this incident may have given Pharaoh just the actionable evidence he needed to get rid of Moses. So Moses had to flee to the wilderness to save his life. His life came crashing down around him. He had every advantage, the best education, the best in natural abilities, the best connections, and all the potential in the world. But he lost it all. All he had left was shattered dreams and unrealized potential. And the memories of what could have been if he hadn't made such a tragic miscalculation. At this point in his life, his dreams are dead. There's no way that he could rescue the Israelites now. Maybe if he had waited a while, maybe if he had waited until he became pharaoh. You know, maybe then maybe he could have succeeded in freeing his people, but now all was lost. He's gone from being a prince in the most powerful nation in the world to being a no-name shepherd in the wilderness. Have you ever felt like you've been there? You know, maybe things were going well, things were going great, you know, but you made one stupid decision, you made one stupid thing that you shouldn't have done, and it just made everything come unraveled, and all this other stuff that, that, you, that you didn't see happening, because all of a sudden, all that stuff uh, just changes everything, and you feel like you made one stupid move, and it ruined everything, and you played over and over in your mind, thinking, you know, if I just hadn't have done that one thing, everything would be fine, everything's ruined now, if I just hadn't have done that one thing, everything would be different. Well, at this point, this is where Moses is. It looks like a horrific tragedy, a train wreck. It looks like an irredeemable failure. But this is not the end of Moses' story. This is the part of the story that that Moses wrote. And these were the results when Moses tried to write his own story. But God hasn't finished yet. How many of you are glad that sometimes, when you've written your own story, Things aren't working out, that God is willing to step in if you let Him and write an alternate ending. It may look like your ending's going one way, and if you keep writing it, man, it's gonna it's gonna be bad. But at any point you come to God and say, you know what, God, I've messed up. God, uh, I need you. I've been going my way without you and doing my own thing, and it's all messed up and just not right. You know, but at any point you're willing to say, Okay, God, I'm giving this to you now, I'm gonna let you write the rest of the story i'm going to give my life to you i'm going to trust you i'm going to trust jesus god is willing to write the rest of your story and that is awesome so next week we're going to look at moses and the rest of his story but for this week here's what we're going to do i'm going to have you stand and uh some prayer team people if you will come and make yourself available and i'm going to pray with you in just a minute and as soon as i do They're going to start uh, to sing the song, and as soon as they do, I want you to come and find a place maybe to pray or to, to pray with one of these people. But let me have you bow your heads first, and let me ask you this. I want to pray for you. You'd say to me with uplifted hand, Pastor Paul, you know what? There are some things in my life I have been writing my own story. Maybe you're a believer. You say, yeah, I'm a believer, but, you know, I've just, I haven't really been following close to God, and I've been writing my own story, and it really, if I'm honest, hasn't been going well. You say, today, I want to stop doing that and let God write my story. Um, Follow him closely. Follow his word and his spirit. You say, yeah, Pastor Paul, that's me. You raise your hand right where you are. Thank you for that hand. Anyone else? That hand, that hand. You know, say, yeah, there's something, something I've been writing, but I want to let God write it. I've been going my own way, but I want to let God control my life. Anyone else? let me just ask you, maybe you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus before, and uh, you'd say, you know what, I have been writing my, my own complete story, but this morning, I believe that Jesus died for me, and I believe he rose again from the dead, and the only thing left is for me to give my heart to him, and to follow him with all of my heart, you say, yeah, Pastor Paul, that's me, I'm not going to call you out or embarrass you, but you say, yeah, I, w- I want to give my life to Jesus this morning, I want to follow him, you raise your hand right where you are, in Jesus' name, amen. Don't want to miss anybody. Let me see that hand if you're here. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Amen. All right, I'm going to say this prayer, and I want you to repeat it after me. And as you do, it's not a magic prayer. It says you combine it with your faith. God's going to do what you ask him to do. Would you do that with me? Dear Jesus, I come to you today a sinner. I confess I can't save myself. I can't redeem myself. But I believe that Jesus died for my sin. That he paid the penalty for my sin. And I believe that he rose from the dead. Dear Jesus, be my Lord. Be my Savior. I give my life to you. And my heart to you. Help me live for you. Every moment. Of every day. In Jesus name. Amen. God I pray for all of these people God. Those who may maybe for the first time. Uh, invited you to be their savior. God bless in Jesus name God. Father for, for all of those who would say they're a believer. And say but there's some area of their life they've been writing. God but they want to just lay that down. And let you uh, write their lives. Uh, God, uh, God bless as we have this altar time. God, in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen.